we began last week, last Sunday, our uh, sermon series, we've begun walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we looked at the first nine verses in that book that, uh, under the title of Church is Hard, and Paul began the first nine verses reminding the church in Corinth, as, as we get to today, you're going to find that it was a church full of all kinds of messes and all kinds of things going on, but it was a church that uh, um, Paul still had great hope for because the Lord was still alive and working amongst them. And so he, he spent the first nine verses um, reminding them who they are because church gets hard when we forget who we are as God's people. And, and so um, the flip side of that is that church is better when we come to the body with a mindset, being mindful of who we are. And so we reminded ourselves that who are we? We are bought and we belong to God first and foremost, that we are cleansed and we are called out by God to be Christ-like, that we are part of God's global people that he is forming, not just in our little neck of the woods, but all around this globe. And last but not least, that we are gifted for the benefits of other people and that God is working us to bless others with his grace and with his work. And so um, today we, we move to verse 10 uh, of our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the theme of church is hard when the gospel stops being the main thing. When we forget that the gospel is the main thing that we are called by, called to, and we serve from, church becomes more complicated. Because church can be many things, but the main thing that the church is, is a living embodiment, it's supposed to be, is the living embodiment of the gospel. And, uh, and so after reminding them who they are, Paul begins to tackle some issues that he had heard about going on in the church. And that leads us to the first one here in verse 10. And really it's a theme um, that carries all the way through four chapters, uh, the first quarter of this book. And so he's going to come at it from lots of different angles, different issues. Um, and so that, we're not going to repeat the same theme over and over, but you're going to look at it from different angles over the next several weeks. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. So let's read that. And uh, it says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 and following. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. And before we go on, I want you to just pause and maybe reread that to yourself and just feel the weight of that. Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to do verses, right? And I don't know that any of them would be any harder than this one, right? To gather, look back over 2,000 years of, of history of the church and all the things that have gone on. Uh, and for Paul to say this, I appeal it to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And this is why he writes it in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, some of his co-workers, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now I would emphasize that he uses the word brothers or sisters. It's a family term twice. Um, and I don't think he does that innocently. I think he is trying to remind them of several reasons that this little new church, a couple, three, four years old in Corinth, that's beginning to suffer these divisions, he writes to them, um, reminding them that not only are they God's people, but they are family themselves. And so you and I are tribal. I heard that word this week in a thing I listened to that, that was a good description of this. We are all tribal 
And by that I mean we are all going around looking for tribes to belong to. We look and say, we want to be able to say, I'm with them and they are with me. And so families are tribes and, and clubs that you're a part of and things that you do. You, you're looking to be a part of a tribe, someone that claims you and that you can claim them. We are wired that way by God. And so tribes are everywhere. They're big tribes, little tribes, all kinds of tribes. Um, maybe you're a Windows tribe or maybe you're an Apple's tribe or an Android tribe. It could be all kinds of electrical tribes. There are sports teams and fan bases that are tribes, professional teams, college teams, high schools. There are political parties that are tribes. Um, and there are runners and there are not runners, right? So some of you have the stickers, the 26.1s and the 13.1 on your windows. Some of you have those. Uh, and some of you have adapted the new version of those, which is the 0, 0.0. And you display those proudly on your car because you ain't running unless someone's chasing you, okay? And so... Um, there are tribes everywhere, right? There, just think through your life. There are tribes all over the place. Well, this tendency is not an unhealthy thing in its core. A tribe is designed by God to be a place where we belong. This tendency, though, has um, certainly multiplied over the last year. Our tribalism has gotten on steroids and um, has multiplied in so many different ways. And certainly, it has found its way into the church, too. And so Paul informs the Corinthian church that I know that there's this tribalism thing that you're a big tribe, right? You're all God's people, but you're beginning to form smaller tribes uh, centered around what we're going to look at in a second. But they're beginning to have these divisions. And that word that he uses, let there be no divisions among you, is a, is a vivid word. It means to take cloth and to tear it. Or to take a field that hasn't been touched and to plow it and to turn it over. It's this idea of tearing something apart that was one. But then he uses the word that you be united. And the word united is the, the reverse of that image. It's the idea to sew something back. It can be used in a medical term to fix a broken bone or to put back together a joint that has been pulled apart. Or dislocated is probably the right term for that. Um, there's a doctor here, so he's probably told me I was right. So dislocated, is that the right term for a bone and joint? Maybe, okay, very good, all right, very good. All right, and so I'll pick out my medical, medical journal next time. Um, so he calls us, though, to not tear, but to join together. And again, that is a challenging task that he puts before us. But Paul is not new in this. Paul is simply flowing out of the life and the mission and the hope and the prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he came along and he said, Father, I, I pray that just as you and I are one, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you sent me as they see that. And so um, that hard command that Paul begins with, that his heart's desire that Jesus shared, that he has for his uh, little flock in Corinth as he watches them begin to be pulled apart. And then in verse 12, he describes what's pulling them apart. Um, he says this, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. And so he describes for us what's going on in the church in Corinth. Their tribalism is taking over, and they're beginning to rally around their favorite preachers, which is not an uncommon thing for churches to do. I once went to a workshop where it put this grid on the wall and said, depending on where you entered into this picture as the preacher, there are people who were there before you who probably had their ways and their favorites, and then people will come after you, and they'll look to you. And it was this complicated mesh of trying to navigate how to lead all those people. Interesting, but it was complicated. 
And so we all tend to do that. We form tribes around people who make an impact in our life. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe um, the group in Corinth, that they were all for Paul. And think of what Paul had done for them. Paul later in this letter is going to call himself their father, spiritual father. He had risked life and limb. He had come, risked a great deal, invested a whole lot to plant this church. And he had reached many people for Jesus. And so maybe that group was just normally drawn to Paul is the one who did all this for us. We are indebted to him. And so we're Pauline people, all right? But there was, when Paul left to go plant other churches, the guy who followed him was a guy by the name of Apollos. And the Bible tells us, I don't know what the alarm is for, but um, let's stop that. Sorry, that's weird. Um, so somebody said that thinking I should be done. The joke's on you, because I'm not. And so... Um, um, the group was for Apollos. Apollos is the one who took over for Paul when he left. They go plant other churches. And so Apollos, the Bible says clearly that Apollos was a great preacher. He was very eloquent. He was a great wordsmith. He was a, a great servant of the Lord, but he was very eloquent. Paul and other places will say he was not a flashy preacher at all. He, he was very basic and, and, and very simple. And so some people were drawn to the eloquence, especially in a city like Corinth, as we're going to see as we move through this letter. They loved the flashy. They loved the uh, impressive. Impress me with your words and with your presentation. And so Paulus fit more into that. He wasn't a bad man. He was a good servant of the Lord, but his style was more that way. So some people were drawn towards Apollos. Maybe there were Jewish people who just related to the, the Jewishness of Peter, that Peter got what it meant to be a Jewish person. So maybe some of the church, because they came from a Jewish background, were drawn towards Peter and some of Peter's disciples. And so you have these groups that they're beginning to, to divide over the Pauline people and the Apollos people and the Peter people. But then the last one, it sounds like a good answer, right? I follow Christ. Right? But it's the attitude with which they said it, it that, that I think makes this a negative. I, I don't think these were the good people. The three other groups were bad, and this is a good one. I think it's their, their attitude that was probably very prideful. Well, I don't need Paul. I don't need Apollos. I don't need Peter. I just have Jesus. And me and Jesus, we're fine. And I don't need all those other things and those people and that other stuff. We have Jesus, and that's all we need. And so there's an arrogance that Paul seems to condemn in that statement. And so Paul stops them. And he says, look, as you divide, and we need to note, first of all, that Paul and Apollos and Peter and certainly Jesus were not misleading them into this. We're going to find later that the Corinthian church wrestled with some false teachers and some who were trying to lead them in wrong directions. That is not the intentions of these servants. These were men who were trying faithfully to just plant seeds of the kingdom of the gospel, water it and see it grow into fruit for Jesus. Their intentions seem to be very, very good. And so but Paul stops them and he warns them, look, before you get too far down this path, you need to stop. Because as he asks in verse 13, he brings up this three questions he asks of them. He says, fine, you look at all of your tribalism and who your favorite tribe leader is. And then he asks these questions. Is Christ divided? The implied answer is no, he's not divided. He's one. We are one tribe in him. Was Paul crucified for you? No, it wasn't Paul that was crucified. It was Jesus. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, when, when you made your decision to surrender to Christ, was it Paul's name that was invoked? No, it was the name of Christ that was invoked in that decision. 
And so he comes and he asks them and causing them to stop and think, okay, I'm rooting more for Paul and I'm rooting for Apollos and Peter and, and I'm rooting for all these leaders and these messengers and I've elevated them to a place and Paul is reminding us, you know what, all of those people are under one, one name. And that is under, as he talks about in verse 11, under the name of Jesus Christ, or verse 10, I should say. And then he, he kind of unpacks the question of, of, of were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because apparently there were people in the church who were doing that. who were saying, you know what? I don't know who baptized you, but when I became a Christian, I was baptized by Paul. So that means something, right? That makes me up here. You just had a Paulus. You just had some servant, some, we don't, he didn't even write Bible books. Paul baptized me. And there's an arrogance that Paul seems to condemn in the verses that follow when he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he begins to just kind of wander. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. And he's just just kind of make the point, look, it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. It's the name of Christ that you are baptized into that matters. It doesn't matter who the messenger is in that scenario. And so then he finishes with, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And he has now turned the thing right side up. They had gotten it upside down where we're more concerned about the messengers and their style and what, what they can or can't do or how they sound or don't sound, um, what they do for us, what they don't do for us. But Paul reminds us that it's not about us. There's a spirit of arrogance and division that he's trying to get rid of as he reminds them that the only thing that produces power for the church is not fancy leaders. It is not eloquent leaders. It is the, it is the message of the cross. And he finishes it in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We'll unpack this verse in a couple weeks. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the thing that is the thing that makes you awe. It's your salvation. The story of, of Christ and the gospel and what Christ has done for you. And so, before we go into all that, he's going to spend a good section of this talking about the cross and all the things that come with that. And we will jump into that in a few weeks but for today, I just want us to take a, a, a pause and just ask ourselves that as we go through our life and our faith, um, just want to remind ourselves of a, of a couple of things. That the word of the cross is the power of God, not the messenger. And I know that you probably know that. But we can start to focus on the messenger sometimes instead of the message. And when we do that, we head down a road that leads us, leaves us powerless to change the hearts of people. Because whether you're passionate and driven like Paul, eloquent like Apollos, or rooted in Christ like Peter was, there's nothing in and of those, those men in their, their life that's going to change a heart. But the gospel, the message of Christ crucified and risen and alive is what Paul is going to make a strong argument for the next many verses. That that's where the power to change comes from. And so... Let's just remind ourselves of a couple of thing, two thing, a couple of things here. Uh, one thing Paul's not saying is what we're going to say first. Number one, that God has a key role for ministers and messengers to play, but our primary loyalty must always be to Christ and not a man or woman. And that's probably a run-on sentence. And if you're an English teacher and I did that, I'm sorry. Um, I should have chopped that down a little bit more. But you get the point, right? That God has a key role. This is not an argument. This text is not an argument to say that Paul and Peter and Apollos and others don't matter. They are necessary parts of what God is doing in the world. That God uses people to spread the gospel. 
Because we all need influence, and God influences the world oftentimes through people surrendered to him. Now, there is a, a video clip I want to show you in a second that um, it's probably being shown in half the churches in America because it's a perfect example of why we need a leader, right? And so if you want to leave here and go to three other churches, you're probably going to see it there too. But you're going to see it here first with that. And so, uh, so this is a picture of a sheep that got stuck in a pit. So he gets stuck in this little trench. Um, he gets rescued maybe. Yay, the sheep is free. So that was a good shepherd there. Well, what happens to the sheep? Oh, okay, all right. And so you get the gist, right? We, that, there's a shepherding analogy there, right? The sheep continue to need to be shepherded. No, and and I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what happened to the sheep, so if, I don't really know. So he may have died. I don't know. I don't think he did, or else they wouldn't have posted the video. Um, but sheep need shepherding. And all throughout Scripture, you find that God puts shepherds or wants to put shepherds in the lives of people to shepherd them and care for them and lead them. And that may be in big ways or in little ways. And so God has a role for ministers, for messengers, for servants to play. But always our primary loyalty, no matter how important or impactful a person or a shepherd has been in our life, our loyalty must always be to Christ first. Examples of that are like Hebrews 13, verse 17, where the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In other words, they will stand before God for what they do or don't do. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Timothy 5 echoes that. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we get to the point of, of just reminding ourselves, and I don't know that anybody, you probably, maybe, maybe you have, I don't think any of us have built a statue in your home to some great leader from your past, but there can be a mental thing where sometimes just the scale begins to be unbalanced. Martin Luther was the leader of, uh, one of the leaders of the Reformation about 500 and some odd years ago. Um, and I love this quote I heard a few weeks ago that uh, um, the Catholic Church had been pretty corrupt for a long time, and, and Luther came along and began to propose changes and reforms to the church. Well, that group of people that was breaking away from Catholicism and following after Luther's ideas began, began to identify as Lutherans. And he said this, um, that would certainly apply to any religious group who names a name. Who is Luther? Or what is Luther? He said, the teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? And so every servant um, of Christ always, that's a great attitude. Like, I'm just a, what is his words? I'm just a stinking bag of maggots. There's your phrase for the week. I'm just a stinking bag of maggots. I'm nothing. I'm just a servant. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks where Paul just says, look, all of us apostles, all of us leaders, we are just stewards and we are messengers. That's all we are. The point of all that we are to do is to point you towards Jesus. And so maybe there have been significant people in your life who have done that. Be thankful. Give thanks to God for them. They should be thanked, they should be appreciated, but they should not be idolized, worshiped, certainly dividing a body of Christ over. And so um, he calls us to that. And the second thing is simply this, and this is just a daily thing, especially in our culture, in our world, where it is so easy to have access to so many voices, so many influences, um, and oftentimes for good. This simply the idea, this idea. We need to constantly guard against the subtle shifts in focus 
towards personality and preferences. In other words, I'm drawn towards a certain personality. Again, not necessarily bad in and of itself, but I can be drawn towards personality and shifted away from where I'm supposed to be, or preferences. And that's what Paul's going to drill down into more and more as we go through this book. Well, my preference is this. And so, because I think that, I will split everything and I will divide everything over this. So personality and preferences, again, from a personal perspective, over the primary power of the gospel message. So we need to constantly guard against subtle shifts in focus towards personality and preferences over the primary power of the gospel message. And that's what Paul is, is condemning them for, is rebuking them for. You prefer Paul for whatever reasons. You prefer Apollos for whatever reasons. You prefer Peter for this reason. Uh, you prefer none of them, and you just want arrogantly think that you're Christ without them. He says, look, that's, that's wrong, that you have lost the focus here. They're all just servants pointing you towards Jesus, who wants to bring his tribe, his people together. It is tempting for our heart's affection to go towards the messenger and not the message. And so we are impacted by God through a messenger. God uses servants all the time. I hope he uses you in many ways to encourage and, and, and nurture and plant seeds in people's lives. But all of us who are engaged in that process must always point to the one who is bigger, which is Jesus. For example, um, when I was two examples, actually. One, when I was a kid, I, uh, I had lots of posters of basketball players and important, quote-unquote, people on my wall, right? It was back when you actually had to cut out the magazine pictures and actually tape them up. You couldn't just keep them on your phone, but you had to actually tape them up around my room. And over the last year of quarantine, a lot of um, documentaries and 30 for 30 specials on ESPN were done about some of my heroes. And the closer that I got to them, the more you know them, you realize, eh, Maybe I'm glad I don't have posters on my wall anymore because those people are, are not the best people. Let me go back and give a Bible example of that. David and Goliath is a great story, famous story in the Bible in 1 Samuel. Goliath, the nine-foot-tall man, is taunting you for weeks on weeks on end. Little David shows up and uh, stands in front of Goliath. And David is laughed at when he walks there out of the battlefield. He's delivering food to his brothers. And he thought, this shouldn't happen. So he grabs his little sling, walks out onto the field. The little kid pulls out a slingshot with a stone in it. And again, he's laughed at because he's nothing compared to the mighty Goliath. Then the stone flies and hits Goliath and it drops him. And the laughter stops. Then David chops off his head. The enemy runs and you pick up your sword and, and the Israelite army takes off after them. Fast forward, though, to supper that night. Um, who are you talking about most? I'm sure the stories around the tables were, wow, did you see what, Goli what David did to Goliath? David, because that's what happens. If you keep reading the story, Saul begins to grow jealous of David because Saul hears the people singing. Oh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David's the mighty warrior. He's all this. And so the people were drawn towards David. Again, David hadn't done anything wrong. He had just served God. But we're prone to look for people to put on a pedestal. But David did not win that battle. God won that battle. And God used a little kid to demonstrate not how great David was, but to demonstrate that God can use the smallest and the weakest. And you're going to see that a lot in Corinthians, that God will choose the things that are not to do his work in this world. 
And so our default, though, is to go towards the person God uses and not to God. We can love messengers, we can appreciate messengers, but we must always appreciate the message, and in particular, the one that the message is about, which is Jesus. And so I hope there have been significant people in your life who have been there when you needed them, who have planted seeds in your life, who have watered seeds, who have shown you the right way to go. I hope there are lots of people that have done that for you. But never stop there with your thanks and your adoration. Always go to the one in whom they serve. That's the Jesus that he's at work, that Jesus is working through. That's the way that Jesus is working through us. And so how do we do this? This is a wonderful text. I read it, but I, every time I finished reading it, it's like the old YBH, yes, but how? That's nice, great words, Paul. I agree with you, but how do you do that? Well, my first answer is I don't know exactly. There's a lot of complicated things that go in this, right? But when you start to look through that verse, I love this poster that uh, someone shared when they went to Reformed Theological Seminary many years ago. And this poster hung in their hallway. It says this, even when they disagree, Christians should start or should share, excuse me, the same position. We may disagree with each other from time to time. But people who have spent time in that position of prayer, of humbleness, of brokenness, of seeking God... Um, are going to handle that better. They're going to have that focus in a better way. A.W. Tozer wrote um, in a book several years ago uh, about tuning pianos. If you've, we used to have a piano in my house. I remember when the piano tuner would come and he'd have those little U-shaped forks that, that he would clang them on something. Um, and you would tune the strings of the piano to each sound. Um, and maybe you've never played the piano, but maybe you've been in band enough for guitars. We have to tune instruments. They have to be tuned to something. Um, and A.W. Tozer writes this about that experience. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, which is that tuning utensil, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other. I don't tune one piano to another piano because eventually that just creates a terrible sound. But if they are tuned to a standard that is outside of themselves, they will all be in tuned with each other. And so 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away, not at each other, but to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become just focused on unity by themselves. And that, I think, is what Paul is calling them to in this passage. Quit looking to Paul, quit looking to Apollos, quit looking to Peter, wonderful servants of God, great messengers, but they're all pointing you to the one that we need to be aligning our lives with. In the weeks to come, Paul will unpack that more, but I think it's important to start with that posture, that position that Paul is calling them to. Because when he uses that word appeal in verse 10, it is a prayerful word. It is a heartfelt word. It's not a command saying, stop it. it just, he's not coming in with authority, uh, double guns blazing, just pulling out the apostle card saying, stop acting like little kids. He appeals to them out of a heart that longs to say, do the right thing here. Look beyond those that you're dividing over. Look to the one they are all pointing you to, which is Jesus. And so when you and I interact in our relationships um, whether here, other places, in our homes even, this, this truth filters down. As we wrestle with those hard things and those things and those opinions and priorities and preferences, may we all start with the same position, having been on our knees, 
asking for the Lord to humble us, to change us, to make us who we should be so that we might be in tune with him and that we might be more in tune with one another. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord and our God, we come and we recognize that this is a hard teaching to apply. We recognize that um, it is always easier to divide. It's always easier to splinter. Um, It's always easier just to form a new tribe. But uh, Father, help us as we navigate, whether this just be in our close friendships or our families, whether this be in our church family, that you would give us that humble, broken, Lord-seeking heart that produces an in-tuneness, that we listen better, that we understand more, that we communicate more calmly, that we do all the things from a better place because we have spent time with you. And so, Lord, uh, in-tune our hearts to you. And we pray that you would do that through your good word and through your spirit at work in our life and that we would humbly come and offer ourselves to that task. And so we love you. And we pray these things in Christ's name.